Uh, I've got a friend over here, Paul Krauss. Paul is uh, a student at Moody, and he's one of the Antioch summer interns, and he came as a discipleship major, and so our kind of discipleship focus through the intern program, and so it was kind of shocking to us when all of a sudden he got here and we, we found out that he could be making a million dollars a year like at Disneyland doing art. You know, the people at Disneyland are like the best artists because they can do it really fast and they can do it perfect. Um, so since he can do things really fast and perfect, uh, he's going to, while we're talking this morning, he's going to be doing uh, an art piece. So you guys, if you get bored, have something to do. <clears throat> this morning we're going to talk about <clears throat> the Justice Conference, which is a really weird thing. Um, why would we come in, why would I come in and, and pretend to give a sermon, and the sermon is actually directional, focused at an event? It just seems really weird, doesn't it? Um, felt really weird all week, too. So I, I had a, a night where I was awake at 3 in the morning. It happens a lot with kids. Uh, couldn't go back to sleep, and so I'm awake at 3 in the morning, and literally just was all tied up in knots, and just really wrestling with this idea of, you know, it really brought it to a head, like, what are we doing? What do we talk about? What are our expectations? What, what is our paradigm for understanding what we do, how we go about doing things, valuing things, talking about things, understanding truth? And, and it really started kind of, you know, bringing things to the surface, because when you're in church long enough, you know what hot buttons are. So I started thinking about, man, today we want to get 200 signups for the Justice Conference, through Antioch Church. And I started thinking, man, driving commerce through a Sunday, Sunday morning service like just really seems funky. Like, didn't Jesus come and drive out the money changers and like actually make a whip? I mean, we call that premeditated, right? It's like premeditated violence. Like he crafted a whip and then went in and used it on humans. I mean, didn't Jesus get really angry about commerce and in the temple courts and so I started th- like thinking about that man, and, and I, in my own mind, I'm like, well, that was totally different. It was the injustice of it and the perversion of it that Jesus got angry about. Um, commerce was something that was necessary because you had people traveling from really far that, that needed to be able to have sacrifices at the temple. What they'd done, though, is they'd taken and, and seen that as a way to extort people because, you know, you don't have... Uh, you don't have a lot of options once you're in Jerusalem. And then they began to pull it into the center of the temple, and they pushed the Gentiles out. So they filled the Gentile court, the court of the people that were hungry for God but didn't even really know that much about God, the people that, in some sense, God would have cared about like so much that he created a court for them to come to to get near to him. And they ended up filling that court with their, their extortion and their their unjust scales. And so in, in reality, like what Jesus was doing was just getting at the heart of the, the perversion that God is a God of justice, wanting people to come from afar, wanting us to, to value uh, the alien and the foreigner. And we've somehow turned that upside down to make a profit. And Jesus just got irate, irate at the injustice. And so my own mind, I'm like, you know, I, I'm, I'm cool with it. And we're not extorting you. Um, we're actually bribing you with a free Congo CD if you register today. It's like the opposite of extortion. Um, 
But so, I mean, I was wrestling with this three o'clock in the morning. The next day I was on the phone with um, a pastor friend of mine. The pastor friend of mine, we were talking and he says, hey, uh, I had to defend you last week in town. And I'm like, oh, really? He's like, yeah, I, you know, I was at this be- event in Bend and I had to defend you. I was there and, and I was helping out kind of through my church in that capacity. And we went up to this gal that was selling brownies and she found out we were with a church and she immediately started saying, yeah, I went to Antioch for a little while. But that pastor, Ken, he told people specifically not to bring their Bibles to church. He doesn't even like the Bible. And my, my pastor friend says, you know, I cut her off right there and says, hey, look, I'm friends with Ken. I know Ken. That's not true. And, but it's like, you know, he's telling me this. And at the same time, like, I, you know, I feel like I've got an arrow in my back. And I'm like hurting, you know. And, and, uh, and I'm just like, really? Some brownie selling lady in town is like <laughs> telling people I don't value the Bible. And it's like, man, Really? I hate Christians, you know? Um, and I, I get in trouble. Like, we should go start a church, the five of us. Um, if you know me well enough, I've uh, been blessed with this wonderful personality. Like, I, I get in trouble enough for the things I do say. It's really hard when I'm getting in trouble for the things I, I didn't say, wouldn't say. <clears throat> but that's out there. It's true. I mean, it, it's perception's reality, right? Antioch's a liberal church. We're into the social gospel. We talk about things like justice, and we value art and creativity. It must not be a real church. And it's, it's hard. You know, you kind of think of those things, and, and then you say, how do I come in and play right into that? Talk about a justice conference that we're, we're pulling off. Literally 30 of your brothers and sisters in this church are pulling off as volunteers, um, and it's going to all benefit World Relief in, in the Killens College. How do, I, how do I play right into that? So here's where we're going to start. We're going to read a lot of Scripture. <laughs> and uh, it's the childish part of me that's... When, when people criticize you, you... No, I'm just kidding. Um, I, seriously, though, I just want to read some verses to you. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your brother, uh, open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and the needy in Deuteronomy 15.11. Defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. It's amazing. The word orphan is only used a couple times in Scripture. <clears throat> The majority of the time, or many times, it's specifically referred to as fatherless. When you go to the third world, you begin to realize that being an orphan is a lot different. In America, we, we think orphans have no parents. You go to the third world, being an orphan is, is not having a parent, or primarily not having a father who's a caretaker. Um, not having a father, the fatherless, are in, in cultures where the mother wouldn't have a lot of resources, is, is uh, being in a position of unable to provide for yourself, unable to have the opportunities to thrive, uh, the basic things that we would all expect to be common to each and every one of us as we grow up. And so to defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. And he who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. If we oppress the poor... <coughs> 
we show contempt to God. How is that? Because oppressing the poor is, is pushing them down. It's stepping on their necks and saying something about reality that is not true. What it's saying about reality is that they are lesser and I am more or we are more, that they, they are not as valuable as the rest. It's, it's creating this class divide and it's, it shows contempt for God. Contempt for God because God created all men and women equal. It's the Imago Dei, the image of God that we all bear and that we all have and we carry with us. And there's a dignity that we all share. And if we don't look at the poor person and understand that they have just as much dignity as the rich person and we show favoritism to the rich person, we are showing contempt to God because God says, man, they're equal. It's an injustice of opportunity. It's an accident of geography. It's, it's who knows what that, that created the gap economically. But that economic gap has absolutely nothing to do with the worth or the value of these two people. So if we show contempt for the poor, if we oppress the poor, then we also show contempt for God. We'll continue on. It says this, Do not exploit the poor because they are poor. I would sound really liberal and you guys would begin to get uncomfortable if I started talking about things like fair trade. If you were to go watch documentaries about the coffee growers in Ethiopia, Ethiopia is where coffee came from. And if you were to go watch about the coffee farmers and these coffee farmers that, that are working this land literally sun up to sun down, sometimes, oftentimes, not even making a dollar a day because they're taken advantage of because they can't read many of them. They can't get to the economic centers to know where the pricing is at for coffee. And they only have one distributor that, that's extorting them, that's taking advantage of them, that's, that's exploiting them because they are poor, because they're powerless, because they don't have influence, because they don't have options. And the system exploits these poor coffee growers and we're on the other end of that chain spending $3.25 for one cup of coffee. And we are comfortable with it because I didn't do it to them. Well, the reason you didn't do it to them is because they're so poor that they're not going to stand right in front of you. They're not the barista. They're so poor that they're on the other end of that economic chain. And just because you don't have ill feelings towards them or just because we don't know their names doesn't mean that we're not a part of this system. We're, ex we're exploiting them. The system is exploiting them because they're poor. The people in Congo that are being forced to work in mines for tungsten and tantalum and tin, as well as other things, because they are poor. And because Apple is taking over the world and needs these things to run the electronics. Just because we don't know their names, just because we don't pass by them on the way to work doesn't mean that we're outside of that injustice or that system. Now, I'm not saying throw out your electronics or don't drink coffee. Frankly, if you stop drinking coffee, half of Africa would be more poor than they are today because we drink, like, what, 80% of the world's coffee? So don't stop drinking the coffee, but we got to understand... Um, exploitation and justice don't have to do with our emotions. 
They have to do with objective structures and realities. And just because we don't feel it doesn't mean we're not in it or a part of it. We'll keep going. It says this, He defended the cause of the poor and the needy. And so all went well. And is that not what it means to know me? This is God talking through the prophet Jeremiah about King Josiah, a good king. And he's prophesying about his son who is like a bad son, a bad king. And he's saying, now Josiah, see, he did right. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy. And so all went well. And is that not what it means to know me? We all walk around during the week and I think we have this constant thing in our gut about wanting to know God and be known by God. We, we want, in some sense, privileged access to, to, this, to this, this God. It's like a celebrity. We, we, we know of a celebrity, but we want the relationship. We want backstage pass. We want access. And we do that with God. We walk around and, and we have this kind of hunger and it never really gets scratched or never really gets satisfied. And we wonder, what do we do with that? And, and it's amazing. It's like he's saying, if you want to know me, if you want that relationship, isn't it just doing right? Helping the poor, defending the weak. There's another verse here that kind of begins to show the centrality of the plan here. I think... Justice was put on the periphery because it's not a felt need for us. It's a felt need for the poor, for the oppressed. The people that have what they need don't have a felt need for justice. And because of that, we always as humans, and I think going all the way back to the beginning, we as humans tend to put it on the periphery because it's not our felt need. It's not central. We put it on the periphery. So here's what God says. It says, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. And he says this, I, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. I desire mercy. He's talking, God is talking about, this is central. The righteous do this. If you're getting it, if it's in balance, you do this. And then on the other side of the equation, he says this, Moreover, say to the royal house of Judah, hear the word of the Lord, O house of David. This is what the Lord says. Administer justice every morning. Rescue from the hand of his oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. Where the battle, in some sense, is for us to, to see justice as a central issue, not a periphery issue. And he's saying, look, to know me, to, to do what I, I desire is to have mercy, justice, compassion um, here, central. Not on the exterior where you can choose to take it up or walk away from it, choose to remember it or forget it. He's saying it's central. You have to do it every day. Every day you walk up and you, you think to yourself, what is right? What is just? How do I labor to be the kind of person who makes this world a just world? 
who redeems and reconciles structures and systems and people one to another and brings about shalom. Every day you do that. And if you don't do that, if you don't realize it as central, I will get so pissed off at you because if you forget that, you forget it. Not just a piece, not just something on the periphery. You forget the whole thing. You lose sight of the whole thing. I want to tell you a little story of Scripture because I never was told this story and it made so much sense when I, when I picked up on the thread. So here's two verses, and I want to show you the progression. In uh, Deuteronomy, this is the giving of the law. Okay, this is at the beginning of the story. It's the giving of the law. And you see this. Cursed is the man who withholds justice from the alien, the fatherless, or the widow. Cursed is the man who withholds justice from the alien, the fatherless, or the widow. You know, it's really ironic in America. We're like, we don't really have the fatherless and we don't really have the widow. I mean, they, we, they're not categories that we really think of. And then the only time we see alien, we get, we, uh, we get our faces all wrinkled up and say, yeah, kick him out. I mean, that's the only time we talk about one of these three things. It's, you know, those, those, those dirty, illegal immigrants breaking the law because they want a better life for their kids, because they want to be able to feed their kids. Because a parent, a father or a mother, when they have kids, will do anything, anything, even if it means sneak across a border to try and provide for their kids what they cannot provide for them where they're at. Those dirty, illegal immigrants. Let's hurry up and get rid of them all. Now, there's just complex political issues, but I'm embarrassed to be a Christian when all we do when we talk about illegal aliens or illegal immigrants is talk about them as if they're political entities that we need to solve in a political fashion without recognizing any of the real human things that are going on with those people. And that if we were in the same position, there's a verse kind of like that, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You know what we did to the Jews that were trying to flee Germany during World War II? We turned their ship away. We'd already supposedly met our quotient of immigration for the year. (laughs) It's not in the sermon, but it should be. Do you know that we never once during World War II filled the entire quotient that we had set for legal immigration. Yet during that time, we turned away on several occasions boatloads of Jews seeking asylum. We look at that just like we look at Thomas Jefferson holding slaves and we think, what a hypocrite. And those, the, 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 the country back in those days, we had our own concentration camps wasn't Jews, it was uh, Japanese Americans. Underneath 
watchtowers of soldiers with guns behind barbed wire. We had our own concentration camps. As far east as Arkansas. We look at that stuff and we're like, really? That's so hypocritical. I wouldn't do that. And then the next conversation, yeah, I like, I like the tough stance on immigration, those, those dirty illegal immigrants. And we don't realize the hypocrisy that we, like our forefathers and like our, our grandparents' generation, put justice in the periphery so quickly and so easily. You know that Thomas Jefferson, one of his first things in the House of Commons in Virginia when he was an early politician, was to stand up against slavery and it almost cost him everything politically. And so he made a key decision right then. He said, if I take this issue, I won't be able to do any other good. So I need to table this issue. And he did. He accommodated. He found the practical, pragmatic solution. That's what we do. We still put it on the periphery and go, you know, there's practical economic things. Life doesn't allow for these hard, extreme stances. So here's Thomas Jefferson, very, very human, just like us. We stand here, look at Thomas Jefferson, go, what a hypocrite. He's writing the Declaration of Independence with slaves. Man, if there was slavery today, I'd do something about it. I wouldn't be like Thomas Jefferson and ignore it. What a hypocrite. Even though there are more slaves today in the world today than ever in the history of the world. So who's the bigger hypocrite? Do you know that we have more mechanisms at our disposal than Thomas Jefferson ever did? Horse and buggy and stuff like that. We have more mechanisms at our disposal to advocate on behalf of slaves than any generation before us. And what we don't realize is that we serve an abolitionist God. The God said he cares about the captives and he sent his son to set the captives free, to loose the chains of injustice. We have a, an abolitionist God and we are supposed to be an abolitionist people and yet we so easily push it to the periphery and talk about issues without even understanding them and, and judge people for hypocrisy that we are in the middle of committing ourselves. And so... Here's this verse in Deuteronomy that says to the people right at the beginning, this trifecta of the alien, the fatherless, the widow, this, this trifecta that we see all throughout Scripture. And it starts here, and then we fast forward, and we see it again in the prophets. And it says this. It says, Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor, and in your hearts do not think evil of each other. That whole different scales thing again. Why are the prophets having to reiterate the exact same thing that was given in the law at the beginning. And so here's the story. The story is God gives the law. It has to do with justice and righteousness. The people go into the land and they forget justice. And so in Isaiah and in in Jeremiah, you see the word justice come up over and over and over again because they forgot the law and they started doing unjustly, uh, working out relationships in an unjust manner, not caring about people 
Um, <laughs> it's like literally 100 verses. And it even talks about just speaking maliciously and gossiping about each other and, and giving false reports about it. I mean, just injustice. And so God takes and he judges his people. He judges them. He carts, remember that whole wrath passage? If you forget this, my wrath will be upon you. He judges his people and he sends them off into slavery once again. He took them out of slavery, gave them this. Now remember this. They forget it. He gets so angry, he says, let's start over again. Puts them into slavery. And then the whole prophets are talking about this. You're put into slavery because you forgot injustice. And then it, and it prophesies. Now, if you will remember justice, then it will go well with you again. So do justly. The whole narrative passages of the Old Testament, they fail. God gets angry, puts them right back where they started, reminds them, look, here's the deal. Justice is central. Come back and act justly. That's 400 years before Christ-ish. And then they go again and the Pharisees come up and they go back to morality again because that's what we always do. We can clothe ourselves in morality. Morality is something that, that has to do with us and it has to do with our name and it has to do with our status. And, and morality is a wonderful thing. Righteousness is a wonderful thing because we get to clothe ourselves with it. It's part and parcel of our image Justice is something that you just wear your... You get poor when you work for justice. When you get up every day and think about justice, you become poor really quickly. And until t-shirts were invented, justice wasn't a fashion statement. Now it is. But so the Pharisees went back to morality. Jerry Falwell went back to morality and... You forget justice when you think that what God cares about most is my own perfect perfection, righteousness, morality, as opposed to those sinners. And then we begin to get the distinctions again. So Jesus comes, and if we understand this story that goes from the law into the, the historical narrative books and then into the prophets, then when we come to Jesus and we see this verse, we understand it. Jesus says this, if you want to be perfect, what does perfect mean? It means you fit the standard. It means you, you like uphold the law. It means that, that you're right. If you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. So if we don't understand the whole central theme of justice, then we don't understand Jesus' things, and then we do like the, the church, the evangelical church in America does, and we go back to putting it on the periphery. And it's no longer central. And when Jesus says comments like this, those kinds of statements are good for like guys like Shane Claiborne, those people that want to live with the homeless in Philadelphia and stuff like that. But that's a periphery statement. Jesus didn't really mean that for everybody. Because we don't understand the, the importance and the angst in Jesus' words. I told you, you forgot. I had to discipline you. You forgot again. 
And now you're asking me, what should we do? And I've come to do what it was we were supposed to do, to, to, to loose the chains, to free the captives, to bind up the sick and to heal. I'm doing it. Now, if you want to be perfect, understand that justice is a central theme because when you're doing justice, it forces you to be with God. There's nothing else that feeds your belly when you're wearing yourself out on behalf of others. There's no selfishness in wearing yourself out on behalf of others. There's no self-sufficiency when you sell everything, give everything away to the poor, and now you have to depend on God. Justice is the thing that forces us into alignment with God. You do that right, everything else comes with it. Jesus is saying, man, if you want to be perfect, start at the beginning and be willing to be with God in building a just kingdom. Jesus condemns the Pharisees, the moral majority of his day. The righteous, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the moral majority of his day. He condemned them. He said, man, you guys are dressed really pretty. But you're exploiting widows. He uses that phrase. He calls them, he condemns them and says, woe to you. He's getting riled up. He's getting angry. He's going to judge them like God said he would. And he's talking to the leaders. And he says, woe to you. And he goes on and there's this little phrase in his rant. As Jesus is ranting, he says, you exploit the widows and you take their houses. Because the husband dies, the house is in the husband's name. There's more property. You exploit the widows. And if you don't understand this whole story that's going on, the trifecta of the alien, the foreigner, and the fatherless, and the widow, that those who cannot help themselves, the weak, those that can help, and those that do have, are supposed to labor on behalf of those and create this unity, shalom, peace, goodness, mercy, a just society. And if you don't understand the story, you pass right over that little phrase. But the irony of that phrase, the irony of Jesus going, you guys, you're doing the exact opposite. So I hear Christian leaders without an ounce of compassion in their voices talking about illegal immigrants without an ounce of compassion. And I'm all for the complexity of politics and that we have to get in there and, and that wisdom needs to prevail and we have to somehow figure this out. I'm all for that. But as Christians, the irony of not even caring about the plight of the alien or the foreigner. It's so amazing to me. The illegal immigrant in this country is no different than my dad. No different than my dad. He came over after World War II. The only difference is he got a piece of paper and was able to then go to school and then go to college and then get, get brought into the military where he could serve and, and earn a living for his family and go somewhere. While the same person, the same year, 1950s, that came across the border has had to run and hide and not go to school 
and not get into the military and not be able to provide for their family. Essentially no difference. Again, there's complexities. As Christians, Jesus would look at us and say, what's in your heart? Is mercy? Is compassion? Do you see this person as a stranger? Afraid? Fearful? In need? Or do you see them as encroaching on your bubble of comfort? Not your picture of how you want America to be. And so you're going to objectively reestablish your comfort without ever thinking about how you can extend your hand to the stranger. Jesus talked about the moral majority of his day and said, the irony that you guys are exploiting widows. I mean, there's just such a visceral response from Christ to what he's seeing. One of the things we get at Antioch is we run into this real interesting dichotomy that exists in the Christian world. And it's basically this idea that doing good really isn't good. You know, doing good, you know, like giving something to somebody or helping the poor, that's doing good. It's not really good, though, with a capital G. It's, It's not, doing good isn't good. It's something else. Doing good would have this extra component of spirituality somehow um, or Bible study or, or something about, you know, the gospel message or Jesus or a calling somebody to repent from their, their sins because they're not moral enough and not clean enough. And that's good. Doing good actually really isn't good. It's something else. So I grew up the last decade in churches where people would walk by other people doing good and actually you could see the reaction of like, what a waste of time because it's not really good. Or I wouldn't waste my time doing good because it's not really good. I mean, I'm trying to give you the irony here of what we've done by saying we're going to be so careful not to get caught up in the social gospel, like loving people, like just just loving people without preaching Jesus. We're not going to get caught up in that. We're going to, we're going to avoid that at all costs, and all we're going to do is preach Jesus. And then the further evolution of that was, now when we see love, we're like, ah, love, that's bad. Preaching Jesus, good. We've come to this ridiculous place where when we see love, we actually think bad. As if Jesus would jump up and down and get excited because we're purposely not loving people. He told a whole parable about that. About a guy beat up on the side of the road and And Jerry Falwell walks by, and then, you know, Pat Robertson walks by, and then whoever walks by, and they don't get caught up with the social gospel. And then some guy that's that's like an emergent church person or like doesn't even know where they're at spiritually comes up and is like, guy hurt, not good. In my gut, I feel like I should do good. I'm going to do good. 
and takes this beat up guy, takes him to a place, gives his own money for an innkeeper to take care of him. So we use that parable, we can use that parable today and, and you'll get a conservative. The funny thing is I'm a conservative. But you'll get other conservatives like all riled up, but you're acting as if that leads to salvation. And it's not the gospel, Ken. You can't go and preach all that stuff and never talk about the gospel. People's lives are hanging in the balance. Heaven and hell. What are you doing, Ken, wasting people's time? you got to talk about meat and potatoes and stop talking about this social gospel stuff. Until we take him to Luke 10. And we see the question that precipitated the parable. And the question was, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we don't realize how screwed up our theology has become. Here's two verses about doing good. For Macedonia, that's Greece, Achaia were pleased to make a contribution. This is Paul talking. For the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Man, there's a famine in Jerusalem. They don't have food. And so Greek churches, half the world away, see the need and they choose to do good. And they take up a collection to meet the famine needs of these Christians. Nobody's going to come to Jesus. Why? They're all saints already. There's no preaching of the gospel in this at all. They're helping other Christians. And it's half the world away. So when we come and we talk about, man, in the Congo, women by the thousands are being raped every day. And we say it's a weapon of war. And you guys are like, what does that mean? It's a weapon of war. It's a weapon of war because if you sneak in it at night and you rape the women in a village... It destroys the woman who no longer is able to work because her dignity is shattered. Her physical body is shattered, gang raped. Her family structure disintegrates and the men leave. She doesn't want to go out anymore for fear of shame. And the whole fabric of that community over the next year or two, as you rape these women, disintegrates. And then the rebels are able to just come in and take over the village. It's a way of just poisoning the well through injustice so that they can oppress a whole people group. And there's economic issues and education and safety concerns and food. Refugees living in internally displaced people camps and and food issues and things like this. Do you know that 70% of the poor in the world are women and little girls. Sounds a lot like fatherless and orphan, doesn't it? 70% are women and little girls. And we talk about the Congo, and the response I get is, it's half a world away. It's half a world away. And where's, where, where's, where are you preaching the gospel in that? You're giving money to churches in Congo to help people? Well, there's already churches there. So how's that a missionary activity? How's that a good use of funds? We need to be good stewards, like give to political action committees. That support good Republican value. I'm, I vote Republican, by the way. That support good, I sometimes vote Republican. The support, 
Morality, because morality is always a little bit easier to grab hold of than justice. It's a little bit more of trying to bring about the bubble that we want. I want everyone to have my values. And we get really wrapped up in morality and we think that's what God really cares about. He gets angry at people like homosexuals. That's where his anger is, is saved up for. And we never realize that the whole time we're sitting there as the hypocrite that God's like, next time I send a prophet, man, I'm sending right at you. I got to, I mean, right at you. You think you've got it all so packaged, but your heart is so far from my heart. We can send money to Congo, half the world away, to the saints in Congo. Why? Because it's doing good. And guess what? Doing good is... My kids get this. It's so funny how adults lose common sense. My kids understand that doing good is good. If there's anything I would hope for Antioch, it would be that as a church, we understand that doing good is good. Period. Here's another verse. Uh, All they asked, this is the council of the, the church leaders in Jerusalem, and Paul goes to Antioch. That's where we got our name. And he's preaching to Gentiles that don't know the Jewish law and all that. And he comes back to the council and says, look, man, we got Jews and we got Gentiles. And it's confusing. Some have the law, know the law. Others don't. And like, what do I do? And, and they kind of tell him what to do. And he goes back and, and writes this letter to these Galatian churches and says, look, when I talked to them, they said, look, just as you're this messy, Paul, but as you're working it out and doing your thing, don't forget to give to the poor. I lost my verse. How did that happen? Um, Continue to remember the poor. And and Paul says, really? That's what you want me to do? (laughs) I wake up every morning thinking about that. I'm eager to do that. He got all excited. uh, Doing good, brothers and sisters, doing good is good. I have a friend, Walker, big burly guy that plays electric guitar here, is on staff. He helps homeless kids all week long in Bend. Moved here to do that. If you want to learn about homelessness homelessness in Bend, go talk to Walker. What he's doing is good. Doing good is good. We're just going to fast forward and skip a whole chunk here. Two chunks. Let's skip to the last verse, actually, uh, of the, I want you to read this last verse here out of Jeremiah. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and you do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. I gave them this land with conditions. That's called the law, that they would be a just people. I brought them into this land. See, they didn't do it. So now you're over here and you're going to be in slavery and I'm going to cut you out. But if you're willing to do what you're supposed to do in the land, then I'll let you go back and have that land. Isn't that the promise for us too? It's amazing how many prophecies of Christ are in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and stuff like that. If we... Jesus said that um, they will inherit the land in his Beatitudes. 
He's talking about the poor and the meek, the poor in spirit, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the peacemakers. He, he rattles off like what sounds like a bunch of radical hippies that live in Philadelphia and then and says they will inherit the land. What is he talking about? He's saying those people that are willing to get up every day and sweat for justice, they're going to inherit the land. That's our promise. If we would, as a church, uphold justice, you know, it used to be fashionable half a dozen years ago to talk about justice. Now, if you go to most churches, what's fashionable is to somehow talk to self-pity. Because frankly, I don't know about you, but I've got a lot of self-pity these days. So if you're, if you're following the crowd and telling them what, where they're, you know, speaking to where they're at, it was really adventurous a half a dozen years ago. Now it's all about self-pity. And, and man, there's such a need for comfort. A lot of you need comfort. I get it. Talking about justice is periphery. That should scare us. There's a kind of sin. Eugene Peterson talked about it in his book, Tell It Slant. He calls, uh, there's a type of illness called uh, latrogenic illness. It's the kind of illness that you only get in a place of healing. Get the irony? It's the kind of sickness or problem you'd only pick up in a hospital. And he'd gone in for a, like a broken leg or a knee surgery and learned about this because he picked up some things that you only get in a hospital. And what he said is he said there's a kind of thing called eusebogenic sins. He made up the word. Eusebia is the Greek word godly, devout. Um, and it, it, there's a Hebrew word for it too. Sadiq is, is righteous, godly, devout. And so these two words, and he took, Eugene Peterson took the Greek word, and he says eusebogenic sins, sins of the righteous. They're the kinds of sins you only pick up in churches, prayer groups, Bible studies. The kind of sins that you're only going to have if you're a Christian. There's an atheist that went around saying, um, and in debates, Christopher Hitchens, he was always asking, there's no good you can do that I can't do as an atheist. And finally, someone called him up in a debate and he said, there's a kind of good I can do that you can't do, and that's live with integrity in my faith and not be a hypocrite. And it's a kind of good that the atheist doesn't have available to him. There's also a kind of sin, and this is what Eugene Peterson was getting at, that we become prone to while we're here. And I think that disease has always been there because God's people always tend to default to felt needs in the middle rather than selfless needs and values in the middle. We pick up these kinds of sins in churches and in prayer groups and Bible studies, and we begin to think it's all about us. And we have to be really careful, and I think the best corrective is to not do this. We've, we have this latent theology that safe is good, healthy in and of itself is good, even though Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. There's a value to suffering. We don't have a theology of suffering like our third world brothers and sisters in Christ do. But we think safe is good. This is our, this is our latent theology, what really is in our gut. We think healthy, absolutely, categorically is good. We think fitting in is good. We think getting what we want is what it means to be blessed. We think comfort is the center point. I was thinking about this the other night. You know what? We all still want to be tucked in at night. That's our approach to God. 
we're very childish in our faith. I don't expect that my daughters will always want to be tucked in by me. If they were wanting to be tucked in at age 30 or 40 or 50, something would feel a little wrong. That movie, you guys remember that movie, Failure to Launch? It's like, (laughs) time to leave. There's a lot of Christians that that's true of. Failure to launch. We still go around and, and what we cry out all day is we just want God to tuck us in, make us comfortable, give us what we want. And God knows something that every parent learns. Sometimes to heap blessing on the object of your affection is actually the very thing that ruins the object of your affection. Sometimes to love and to bless too much the object of your affection is to actually undo and harm the object of your affection. If you give too indiscriminately to your children, you are going to spoil them. And so if we come as a spoiled child to God and expect that every desire, every want is going to be met, we don't understand that that's not what God wants for us. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love us, but what God wants for us is, is, is for us to grow. We have a justice conference that we're going to do in February. And one of the things we're trying to help people understand is that pouring yourself out, pouring yourself out for the good of others actually creates the meaning. The deficiency of which contributes to the self-esteem and worth issues in the first place. A lot of us feel self-pity, feel depressed, feel whatever. It's a lack of meaning. And when we don't give, it creates a vacuum, a lack of meaning, which contributes to the fact that we feel the way we do. I have a phrase, it's called love your way out. When you're in a funk, go love somebody else. Put their needs at the center for a little while and you'll be amazed at how your emotions and your attitudes can just change instantaneously. And so the lack of doing good creates the vacuum, creates the absence of meaning, the absence of which fuels the way we feel most of the time. We have a justice conference. I'm a pastor. It says in Ephesians, my job, if I do it well, is to equip and to educate and to try and give resources to people to do the things God would want them to do. So we have a justice conference in February to try and help us understand these things, to put it in front of us, to be equipped, to wrestle with it, to just promote it, to take it out of the periphery and put it front and center for just a little bit that maybe God can do something with that. And at this conference, we have speakers. Shane Moore was one of the original people in one and sits on the board of the One Campaign. And she's a Christian mom. And her new book is called Global Soccer Mom. What do you do when, like you, you're sitting there with kids in Bend, Oregon, yet you care about the world? Matthew Sorens and Jenny Huang are two members of World Relief. They just wrote a book on the immigration debate called Welcoming the Stranger from a Christian Perspective. Justin Wheeler is going to be up here talking about the oppressed in North Korea. It's an amazing little subject that we know nothing about. The amazing thing is Justin and Kira, his wife, used to go to Antioch till a year ago, and they moved down to California to do this full-time, to advocate with Link Global on behalf of 
uh, the people of North Korea. And Justin's going to be coming up and sharing about that. Debbie Dortzbach wrote a book called The AIDS Crisis. She's the expert on AIDS at World Relief, uh, on HIV AIDS in the third world. Mercy Design is with the Not For Sale campaign that's going to be sharing about human trafficking. Kiva.org is going to be coming and sharing about microfinance. Medical Teams International, a Christian organization, is going to be talking about medical care in the third world and how you can use those gifts, your experience, your, your career even, to help people like that. Nicholas Walterstorff, the leading Christian philosopher on the idea of justice in human rights and shalom from a Christian perspective, is going to be the keynote speaker. Adam Hochschild, who wrote the book King Leopold's Ghost, that many of you have read, about the history of the, the free state in Congo. King Leopold took over the whole Congo, his own, his own little playground, and then just introduced cutting off of arms to Africa. That's where it came from. And 8 million people died under his reign as he got rubber and other things to send to Europe. Uh, the writer of that book, telling that story, Adam Hochschild, is going to be here. Our friend Marcel Surabungo from the Congo, who was with us a year ago for the Congo Benefit Concert, is going to be here as well. Lynn Hybels, who's married to Bill Hybels, they planted Willow Creek in Chicago. It's going to be coming and talking about a couple different things. Nice girls don't change the world. I love the topic of that. Um, and then she's going to interview the couple that are doing, uh, that wrote the book on immigration and so much more. I wrote a question, a series of questions. Someone's writing an article on the Justice Conference. One of our speakers is Mike Yankowski, who spoke here before. I wrote a question to him, said, hey, can you just answer some of these questions? Because I'd be curious what your, your take is. And I, I wrote, what do you say to the objection that there are more important things to talk about than justice, as if justice is on the periphery. And Mike writes back and he says this, like what? <laughs> Seriously, though, again and again in the scriptures, we hear of the creator, God's desire for relationship with his creation, and thus his concern for the redemption of the whole world. The fulfillment of this redemption is what we as Christians are ultimately longing for because justice is a fundamental aspect of the coming kingdom. Or do we really think that God's kingdom excludes justice? And therefore we must seek to promote justice if we are to be authentic witnesses to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Do you know that 86% of the, the people in the world live in the third world? 86% of the people in the world live in the, in the third world. Do you know that it would take $11 billion to educate every boy and girl in the world? Why is that an interesting figure? It's an interesting figure because it's what Europe spends on ice cream in one year. If you trade, traded Europe's ice cream addiction, you would educate every boy and girl in the world. I would love to know what the statistic is on if you traded our caffeine addiction in America, what you could do for the third world. Here's how you guys can help, if you care. And not everyone's going to care about this justice conference. I get it. I get it. Here's how you can help. If you are willing to help promote through your social networking, your emails, your contacts, your friends, and just get the word out, send links out, post things as it goes along, um, just write on your connection card in your bulletin, Justice Promo. And we'll put you guys on a whole email list and then we'll send out updates that you guys can help us relay onward. Does that make sense? By the way, this conference is a national level conference. World Relief is actually fronting a bunch of the money for us to 
make it a national conference for them to bring all their partner churches to, other organizations, other people like that, all coming to Bend, Oregon. Visit Bend as one of our partners. They're sending a Bend welcome kit to every conference registrant. We're actually helping the economy of Bend. Maybe someone will care about that. Um, if you will help with Justice Promo, write Justice Promo. If you, will, if you want to volunteer at the event, you're like, man, I can't even afford to buy the ticket for the event. But I'll volunteer there and try and do everything I can to pull it off. Then just write Justice Event. If you want to be a local business sponsor, just help us out financially. And on the poster that's going to be put all around town for the next six months and have, have your organization, it's a win-win in terms of marketing or whatever, um, then just write Justice Sponsorship on your connection card and put that in. The offering is going to be taken right after this and put that in there. Um, actually, Grace is probably, probably need to come up now. Um, if you know of something else you want to do, put that on there. We're actually auctioning off this piece of artwork to help the Justice Conference. So if you like, look at that and you're like, man, that's cool. It's a story. I want it. Um, you can actually help the Justice Conference that way. But the biggest thing is this, and Ann Morrow, when she closes, is going to talk a little bit more. I'll just briefly touch on it. We have this introductory period with really low pricing and free pre-conference, and we need 200 registrations from Antioch Church for this thing to work in February. And I could go into detail about the economics and the size and the this and the that, but for this thing to work, we need to start with 200 registrations and then it's just a downhill run the rest of the way. And we're coming to our church and just saying, man, we're weak. I watched the movie Traded. I think I'm going to change our, our uh, take-in. You guys remember that with Liam Neeson? I watched that, and I think I'm going to, like, change sex trafficking globally. And then, and then three months later, all I care about is my fantasy football team. I mean, that's me, okay? So <laughs> that's my story. Maybe you're like me. It's not easy to change the world. It's not easy to even stay concerned about it. You get what I'm saying that way? So we just ask that maybe you'd help us because this conference maybe, just maybe, will help people like me, help people like you build a sustainable plan for how God can use us to actually make an impact in this world. And we care about more than just fantasy football. So we actually need 200 signups. And so they've got like 1,000 computers outside when you go into the halls. You can be like, whoa, what's going on? Um, it's my conviction that Jesus wouldn't chase you out with a whip. It's my conviction that he'd actually say, sweet, I, I value what's going on in your heart. I value what's going on in your guys' guts, what you're trying to do even though you do it so weakly. I want to end with this quote. When we, we teach a human rights class at Kilns College, a history and philosophy of human rights. It's actually being taught this fall if you want to register for it. But I used a, a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in that class. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, and it haunts me, this quote haunts me. And he said this. If, remember, he lived during World War II. And he said, only if you cry out for the Jews are you permitted to sing Gregorian chant. Now, he was a Lutheran. He didn't sing a lot of Gregorian chant. What he was trying to say is, if you want to worship and have the feelies with your relationship with God, that really only comes on the back end of whether or not you're going to stand up or stand against injustice. 
Only if you cry out for the Jews are you permitted to sing.